This is Sober Company. My name is Lacey. My name's Nick. And today we talk to Chris Marshall from Sands Bar. He's the founder of Sands Bar, which is, I mean, it was the first sober bar we ever heard of. So. Yeah, they had a pop-up event in New York City. Right. So to us, show. it's the first it's ever. The, the OG. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's, uh, Sands Bar is founded in Austin, Texas, and they have, they're open Friday and Saturday nights. And they also have pop-up events around the country and in Canada. So look for him in your city soon. He is a former recovery counselor who, you know, was inspired to create a sober space after working with a bunch of clients who would get sober through rehab, et cetera, and then would need that kind of extra social support once they got out. So he's created this really special environment in Austin and he takes that wherever he goes, you know, and creates a different space in different cities and is, is awesome. He's in recovery himself. So he really, you know gets it i guess is what yeah i think it's awesome what he's doing and we had an awesome conversation with him Mm -hmm. so hope you all enjoy welcome chris we're so happy to have you on super company hey thanks for having me on yeah we were fans of sands bar for a while i think you were the first for sure the first sober bar we had ever heard of ever and then we went to one of your events with big vision last year yeah even oh yeah yeah Mm mm-hmm and uh, I think it was, I don't remember which event it is, but it was really fun. It was like a huge dance party. Yeah. And, oh, um, that was in April. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. Yeah. We were just fun. looking at the pictures. Photo booth. Yeah. Photo booth <laughs> pictures on my refrigerator this morning. Anyway. Yeah. So we are big fans and you are based in Austin, right? Austin, Texas. Yes. Austin, Texas. So maybe you can give us like a bit of background or like for the listeners on what Sands Bar actually is. Yeah, so Sands Bar is a concept that I created about two years ago, or th- I'm sorry, three years ago now. That's impressive. <laughs> still, yeah. Still, still, still trying to wrap my head around the fact that it's 2020. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just started this concept uh, three years ago. I was a counselor working with clients, and time and time again, I'd see the same thing happening. Clients would go to treatment, get better, you do do aftercare maybe, and the results were always really positive. And as soon as they would get back into the real world, they would struggle to find that social connection because they couldn't go to the places that they were going. And more than that, I was watching my friends who weren't heavy alcohol users really struggling to find a place that they could go that wasn't about alcohol and that wasn't centered around drinking. Mm -hmm. So um, it was kind of the perfect storm of just observations and just realizing that things weren't um, accommodating to people who decided to not drink. Right, that there was something missing in the marketplace for this huge group of people mm-hmm. who want to go out and have fun and spend their money places, you know, and right. aren't supported in that. I can see that. And you, um, are you, you were an, so you're an addiction counselor. Are you con- currently, did you, are you doing Sandsbar full-time now? Oh, yeah, I've been doing full Sandsbar full-time for the past year. Oh, awesome. Um, I stepped away from counseling in part because I really believe in this idea, yeah. and uh, it really started to take off in a way that I didn't expect. And so, yeah, this is my full-time gig. That's awesome. And uh, so I, I, I listened, we both listened to your interview with Ruby Warrington at Sober Curious, her podcast. And I, I thought there was something that you said in it that I thought was really interesting which is something that Nick and I have discussed, which is, you know, if, if, for instance, if you, you know, if you think of, you know, 
addiction, if you're going to treatment for a disease like heart heart disease or anything, if you if you're or you're seeking treatment for this and you continually leave the hospital and it's still there and you're still having problems, like that's a major issue that healthcare would try and figure out, right? But if addiction is just considered kind of part and parcel, right? With rehabs that there's kind of people go in and out all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting, you know, if we're looking at it through the lens of a medical ailment, no other medical illness or problem is treated the same way that mental health and, and addiction specifically is treated. We do not think of it as you know, this intervention that we're doing is not working. Right. We need to try something else. So we look at it as this inter- this intervention did not work, so it must be the patient's fault. Right. So we must go, right. so we must go back and like impress upon the patient the importance of maintaining this care. And it's uh, it's a system that's I believe fundamentally unsustainable. Mm-hmm. I think people are, and I think insurance companies too. They're kind of wising up and they're saying, "Well, wait a second. This person's been to rehab. You know, sometimes the same rehab." 30 to 40 times, you know, what are, what are we doing? And, and I, and I believe that there's inherent value in what happens in treatment centers. But I think the idea that someone can go somewhere for 30, 60, 90 days, leave and have the same problem and then come back to the same place or someplace like it and get the same amount or the same level of care is just, you know, I don't know. I just don't, I've always taken issue with that. And so I feel like, you know, part of what I had to do was step out of that system right. and create something that would be a companion to it and run alongside it to support what happens in the clinical setting. Right. And it's such a positive thing, you know, as opposed to, I think, you know, lots of the, lots of talk about getting sober and addiction and all of this, it's really scary and dark and, and creating a place and an environment that's warm and inviting and celebrates the experience and the people who have experienced addiction, et cetera, or maybe are just taking time out from alcohol. Like it's, it's a very positive thing, and that's kind of unusual in this realm. Yeah, I think that was the other kind of thing that prompted me to start Sandsbar was just the way that we talk about addiction in this country. We talk about mm-hmm. and we talk about alcoholism and and again, this is just, you know, one end of the spectrum. Right now we're talking about the recovery, addiction mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. There's a whole other spectrum, the kind of sober curious mm-hmm. spectrum that you know we can talk about later. But mm-hmm. it just for just for this particular part of the spectrum, it's very dire. Mm-hmm. And and rightfully so. I mean, you know, some people at this end of the spectrum are facing life and death. Mm-hmm. And I've had a a handful of clients in my career that did die mm-hmm. as a result of their return to substance use or through even detoxing. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked at a detox and lost clients uh, through the detox process. So I know that it's a, a very serious and grave thing that we are talking about, but I believe that ultimately human beings respond better to positive mm-hmm. narratives than negative ones. Mm-hmm. And if the story is, you're you're going to die, and this is the only way that you can be saved. We're less inclined to hear, to listen to that story as opposed to if you were to continue to stay to stay sober. Right. Here is what you stand to gain. You stand to gain this incredible life mm-hmm. with all of this connection, with all of this value, and frankly, purpose that you didn't even realize you contained. Mm-hmm. That is the story that I believe is ultimately more reinforcing and and 
is more compelling and it keeps people focused on the good aspects of staying sober as opposed to everything that they could lose um, by returning to substance use. Yeah, for sure. I love that. It's so much more positive and not really like a fear-based motivation, Right. right? Yeah, we just don't, human beings just do not respond well to that. I mean, we just, when we, when we talk about, you know, fear and losing things, that activates that ancient part of our brains that goes into survival mode. Mm-hmm. And and if you've been using substances to cope with, you know, it, you know just existential threat, right. you're going to go back to the things that you do to survive. Right. <laughs> and so it's just like this negative feedback loop where, no matter what you tell someone, if you're always focusing on, you know, the negative consequences of continuing substance use or returning back to it, they're just going to continue to use that negative tool that they have in their toolbox. And that they're just going to continue to smash with that hammer Mm -hmm. the world around them and ultimately destroy themselves and the people around them. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much shame, obviously, wrapped up in to this, I guess, identity of being someone mm-hmm. in recovery. And I think something, you know, Sandsbar helps a lot with that because it's, it's again, like I said, like a celebration and uplifting of that experience as opposed to something like, oh, you have to go hide in a corner and not talk about it and not tell anyone about it. Yeah. You know, let's mm-hmm. like get together and, you know, celebrate our healthy choices and that our life is so much better now, you know? So Chris, right. I had a question for you. Like, so it's, I mean, when we're talking about fear and just starting things up, like just starting up Sandsbar yeah. to me seems like, I don't know. I've never really started a business or anything like that. It seems like one of the scariest things to do, <laughs> and especially to go out into this thing that it's not, it's, you don't really see sober bars. And quit you your know? full-time job. And yeah. So how did that even start? Like where, what were, what did you do first when you were starting this thing up in Austin? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you're very right to say that there's yeah. <laughs> a, a good, a good amount of geez. I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is oh man, it's it's like speaking on a on the biggest stage you've ever spoken in front of with all of your worldly possessions on the line, right? Yeah. <laughs> it is. I feel like Eminem in Eight Mile every single time I you know uh, do one of these events because it is it is scary. It, it and it was scary to start something that I had never even you know kind of thought about doing. But I will say that. I didn't just blindly jump into this. I did a lot of research, uh-huh. uh, spent a lot of time on the phone, you know, exchanging emails with a lot of people that tried to start sober bars. You know, gosh, now it would be like eight, six or seven years ago. Yeah, six or seven uh-huh. years ago. Yeah, people tried to start. You know, a handful of people. It was like it became like a quick little thing, and it was so. It happened so quickly, kind of in the uh, collective conscious here in the United States, that it almost just didn't even exist. It was so so kind of like this this little quick little trend that lasted for like pan. 6 months, like flash in the pan, right? Mm. And so I went and called every person I could find that tried to start a sober bar at that time. Huh. And I asked them why they failed. Yeah. Um I, I really wasn't interested in people that succeeded uh because people that succeed they they f- they figured out, you know, what works for them, but I was looking for the commonalities of people who did not succeed. You know, why why did this not work for you in, in your city or why did this not work in your particular set of circumstances? And I talked to people all across the country and I was surprised how many people really opened up and responded and said, you know, honestly, it was a good idea. The market just wasn't there for it. Mm-hmm. Or we just didn't realize that people didn't understand what we were trying to do. You know, and so I just I just started to just 
take these notes, just copious notes of all these conversations, and then studied them, and then looked for any commonality. And the one commonality that I found was everyone tried to start this thing too big, too fast. Mm. Everyone got a loan. Um, they got a building, they built out the building, they hired staff, they got a menu, they got oh, a wow. website and they got everything together and they never once stopped and asked anyone like, Hey, is this something you'd actually go to? Right. <laughs> like right. no one stopped and asked anyone. They thought it was a good idea. They ran with it yeah. and a lot of people had money behind it and there was no market for it. Huh. Or they, they hadn't done the, the kind of like due diligence to understand that you know, paying for a sixteen or seventeen dollar drink is just not something that people are going to want to do. Like they're just, it, it's hard. It's a hard sell. And so, how do you? What are the economics of a sober bar that make it work? And so, right. it took. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm going to do this. It, I did do a lot of preparation on the front end. Um, that doesn't mean that I wasn't just wildly surprised about like how hard it was, but. I did do a little bit of research. I did talk to people and and at some point I did have to just take that 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 leap and I just had to go for it. Yeah. And you you're married, right? And Yes. And, mm-hmm. and um your spouse is supportive and Oh yeah, and, my wife's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so my wife is is not in recovery. Okay. Um you know, we got married when I was uh, like with the two and a half year sober. Okay. And uh yeah, I mean, she supported me in doing this. And, you know, for the first couple of months when Sam's Bar wasn't making a whole bunch of money, mm-hmm. she not only supported us financially, but just just words of encouragement. And emotional just, support, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have kids. And so, I mean, Friday nights, she's with the kids every Friday night. And so as much as people like to make this a story of Chris Marshall and how he built this bar, right. you know, my, my wife is a huge part of, of this thing. Shout For out sure. to her. Yeah. 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 Shout out to her. It's yeah. important. So, Chris, you mentioned some, you know, what uh, people did before. They weren't able to find a market for this, but you've been able to find a market. What kind of made that different? Is it just a different time right now? Were you were there different people coming to Sands Bar that weren't going to these other mm. uh, sober bars before? Yeah, I think I think what happened is kind of a you know perfect. It just perfect. It was a perfect storm. I always give this analogy that, you know, when you start something new, it's like getting in the water. It's like taking your surfboard out. I've never surfed. I don't know why I keep using this analogy. I don't know why I keep using a surfboard. Yeah, analogy. you grew up in never... Texas, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the waves aren't that great in Galveston, Texas. But um, I've seen people surf, so I guess I can kind of draw from that. Yeah. Um, and I have a huge obsession with surfing because I just feel like it's it's a crazy what a crazy thing for a human being to get in just to do it all in, in, into an ocean right? that, that can swallow them whole and they, they conquer this wave. I mean, I think it's really an amazing sport, mm-hmm. but and maybe that's why I use the analogy because yeah. I do think there's such, there's such incredible skill that goes into, to conquering your, your inherent fear of mm-hmm. um, disaster. So I, I do like in, you know, what I did to getting in the water with your surfboard and you're waiting for that wave to come. And in 2017, that wave was just starting to build. And I just happened to be in the water when the Sober Curious movement yeah. started to grow. And as that wave began to crest, I was able to ride that wave. The people who started 
who tried to start sober bars years ago, there just wasn't a wave in the water. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to make a wave happen, and it just wasn't there. So, again, I, I can't take credit for that wave. Ruby Warrington created a huge wave, and I've been able to ride it. And I've, and I've just had other waves come behind that. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the press kind of saw that this was sober, sober living and sobriety was having a moment. And there was a ton of press around that. And then other sober bars, Getaway Bar in Brooklyn right. and Listen Bar there in New York uh-huh. as well, they started to to kind of grow. And so, you know, we were creating waves for each other. Mm-hmm. And it was just a series of perfect events that created the perfect wave. And that is what enabled me to ride that wave. I, I could not be here without all of those factors mm-hmm. being in play. Yeah. And I also think we talked about this a lot. Like, I think this younger generation, the millennial generation, is a lot more open about their experiences and what makes them unique. And maybe substance abuse or dependency is one of those things. And so there's a lot, a larger conversation around it. People aren't Mm -hmm. as... They don't, they don't see the, the reason for the shame so much, which I completely get behind. I wish I had more of that when I was active and yeah. getting, getting sober. But I think, you know, that nationally, I think it's like the sober curious movement. I think it's also just people like allowing themselves to have this conversation publicly on Twitter. Well, it's like also, people are like realizing that alcohol is kind of lame. Too. Like you don't need to have alcohol to like connect with people. Completely. Right? Yeah. And there's not a lot of places to do that. Because most of the places, especially like living in New York City, I'm sure Austin's similar. There's bars and bars and bars, and that's where everyone hangs out. It's like mm-hmm. the de facto thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and the alcohol industry made sure that that was the way that that happened. You right. know, uh, there's a great documentary that I, I always tell people, recommend people watch is the uh, story of Prohibition. Uh, the Ken Burns documentary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's still on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. It's really long, but it's really interesting because what you see is that after Prohibition, uh, big alcohol made it a point to to wedge itself into society mm. and to make itself synonymous with um, sports, mm-hmm. with with American culture, uh, with feminism, it, right, like it, right. it attached itself to all these different branches of society so that it could never go away again. Because what happened during Prohibition was almost the end of big alcohol. Yeah, I mean, there was still, you know, bootlegging and all the other stuff happening during Prohibition. But a large part of the, the you know, the big kind of five, you know, alcohol companies, they all made this kind of pact, you know, how can we... We need to work together so that this never happens again. And so, you know, the bar experience uh, has been promoted and, and, and cash funded sometimes by the big alcohol industry mm-hmm. because they have a vested interest in maintaining um, this idea that socialization as an adult is only possible with alcohol. Mm-hmm. That, that is, that is the, the goal. And they've sold that narrative for, uh, you know, a hundred years in this country. And I think myself and some other people are finally saying, wait a second, this is an actual poison. Right. (laughs) Yeah. We we say that too. Yeah. It's an actual poison and it's an actual poison that you have to 
and I think what's different from what's happening now and what was happening a hun- exactly a hundred years ago mm-hmm. in this country is that we're not saying you know people in this movement are not saying you can't drink and drinking is not good for you or, or it's not good for for society. You're saying that the fact is that it's poison and that is a personal choice of whether you want to continue drinking poison. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I think we talk about that a lot. This this concept of you're not normal unless you're drinking this poison all the time. Like you're abnormal. It's your problem that you got that this poison is affecting your life in a negative way and that it's so messed yeah, up. Yeah, and it's also stuff. like the you know, the point that you're making is just so ingrained in society that even to question it, like Lisa's right. saying, is abnormal. And then you don't really have spots to do it. So I want to kind of go back to your surfing analogy a little bit, Chris, because I really like it. But I could tell you're a super humble guy because you're kind of forgetting that, like, the surfer also needs to have skill to surf that, you know, surf the wave, right? Maybe can you talk about what makes Sandsbar so unique? And I know that you guys are doing some of the world tour stuff and you've gone lots of different cities. So mm-hmm. what makes you guys so special and what makes it, you know, the place that people really resonate with? And, you know, that's, that's, uh, I'm glad you pointed that out, that it does take a little bit of skill. I, it, it, it's something that I'm still working at, you know, at, you know, 13 years of sobriety, I still have to learn to accept the fact that I, I, I have some skills, you know, I, I have to work on that accepting like, you know, this, this is something that I've built. I, cause I do, I do struggle with that kind of accepting that I, I, I've, I've built something great. And I think what makes Sandspart special and different is that my dream all along when I started this thing was to become a third space. You know, one of my one of my heroes and and I think you I think a good surfer probably studies other great surfers, right? And yeah. so yeah. one uh company that I really liked is Starbucks and I studied I studied uh Mr. Schultz and how he built Starbucks and and understanding that he created the idea of a third space, that mm. this was not work and it wasn't home, it was a third space. And then he made that space you know, not centered around alcohol. Now I know, you know, Starbucks now serves alcohol in right. some spots. <laughs> but, I saw that. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I was like, what? But <laughs> um, but I I recognize the genius in creating a third space. And so that was really the big picture for me was like, how do I create a third space? But I don't want to create a third space that's gonna be just about partying or or mm-hmm. just a substitute for a rowdy, noisy, crazy bar because I don't ultimately think that's what people go to bars for. Um, I think you do go to bars and if, you know, a crazy dance party breaks out and you're there for that, or, you know, if you meet someone and it, is, it turns out to be a crazy night in New York, like, yeah. which, which happens, right? right yeah. But I think that that ma- the magic of it really is the connection piece. What I noticed was happening was that sober alternative spaces were mostly about a party, they were kind of like replicating like the party and dancing on the bar and mm-hmm. <laughs> just like having this kind of wild raucous time. And and I think that there's a need for that, right? We need to have that opportunity. And in fact, when we were in New York, uh, we had a great time. People were jumping up and down, dancing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that yes. That's yeah. very anomalous to what so- Sandsbar actually does. Uh-huh. You know, I, I think it is much more connection and conversation centered because I believe that is what people go out to bars for right yeah absolutely they they go out to be with other people they go out to feel less alone Mm -hmm. and 
that's what Sands Bar really wants to create, an experience in which you can connect to other people that live you know, down the street and, and in your neighborhood. We want you to walk away you know, with friends mm-hmm. instead of just leaving empty. Yeah, I guess it's like when I used to go to bars, like I would go with my friends and I usually just only hung out with my friends, really, Sometimes until like, you know, I'd have to get a few drinks in me right. and then go like talk to somebody I thought was cute or something like that. But it wasn't right. like, it's hard to do that, you know, until I became sober and actually had to interact with people and, you know. Be uncomfortable. Yeah. Get through this discomfort. Yeah. 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 I totally think that that's, that's true of for most people that that drink they go to meet their friends and they leave with the same friends Mm -hmm. and most of the times it's there's not even real connection happening among those friends oh for sure yeah if you've ever observed like a group of people i i do this a lot just because it's it's important for me to kind of understand again i watch i don't watch what i want or what i think is like the goal of what i want i always watch things that are approximations because I think that that's the, I just learned so much more around um, that gray area than I do in like, this is the ideal, right? Right. I learned so much from just those kind of like uh, adjacent um, situations. So I I, I watch a lot of people drink and and I watch people drinking groups a, a lot. And what you notice is that as people drink, they stop talking really to each other yeah. and they're talking about themselves wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah, <it's so> true. <laughs> and they're talking at each other. Yes, That's exactly what happens. <laughs> and so I was watching a group of, of people talking and this is like, you know, kind of an Austin kind of hip bar, like all these kind of like cool, the cool kids, you know, right, right. you know, they're, they're, they're dressed like they, you know, cool hats, fresh off. Yeah. Fresh <laughs> off an, an Instagrammable like yes. post and uh-huh. like, you know, it's, it's, you know, totally Austin. Right. Uh-huh. And they're, they're kind of young professionals. So they were talking about kind of work. And then as they started drinking, they would say something and no one else would respond to what they were saying. And then just someone else would feel, fill the silence. Yeah, It was like, it was just like, these people aren't even talking to each other. They're just talking so that <laughs> yeah. there's not silence. Yeah. I remember that. That, that brings, <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's like you're just shouting things that you think are funny, but you're really just right. talking to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right. And no one and no one really is hearing what you're saying no. because alcohol impairs our ability to like take in all that information. So you're not really right. even being heard. Right. And I think that's why so many people go back to that again, much like the what we were talking about earlier with the treatment industry, they go back to, to a something that's not working for them because they're hoping to get something right. out of it. They're hoping people go back to the bar over and over again because they're hoping to find that spark of connection Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they never find it. They never feel completely fulfilled. And and this isn't even about alcohol at this point. This is about just what the traditional bar scene offers. Mm -hmm. And it does not offer you the actual connection that human beings need um, to, to have a healthy and fulfilling life. No, which is really to be listened to and understood. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's great. So you have to go on a completely different subject because I, I think about this because I grew up in a family with addiction and so I was spoken to about addiction and, and I, you know, I just, I think about it. If I ever have kids, like what I would talk, and I know you have kids, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So are they old enough to be 
to understand addiction yet, or are they still very young? Yeah, so my kids are at this time uh, four and five and a okay. half. Okay. And so, so no, <laughs> they're 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 a little they're a little young. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I am proud of is, um, and obviously since I've been sober for thirteen years, they've never seen me mm-hmm. or my wife intoxicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I I. I thought I would never have kids because I thought I, I just would just ruin it all while yeah. I was, you know, when I was drinking, yeah. I just thought I would never have a family. Um, so these kids have never seen anyone intoxicated, mm-hmm. but what they do know is that I own a sober bar <laughs> and oftentimes they're with me, you know, getting, you know, produce or, mm-hmm. you know, getting drinks and they, you know, they tell their, they tell, you know, the person at the cashier, my dad owns a sober bar, a sans bar, you know, yeah. <laughs> my dad owns a sans bar. And it's just like, you know, we're going to make drinks. And I always like, I always tell people like sober drinks. These are, I, it's a sober bar. Like, right. You, know, you explain it. Kids like kids are going to, <laughs> going to school saying like, I was at my dad's bar yesterday and we were making drinks and I'm like, yeah. It's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I like had to clarify like you need to tell people it's a sober bar kids and you know they don't understand what that means but they they get what I do they get yeah. that that I own a space where adults go and have fun mm-hmm. and I am very proud of that fact I mean I yeah. think that's what I'm most proud of is that my kids can say where I work mm-hmm. and they've been to the bar and they they know you know they know that this is something that I really value and I hope that one day I can pass it along to them. That's really cool. Do you do you think about how you'll talk to them about the experience of drinking alcohol? And absolutely, yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I've often since since the day uh, my children are adopted, mm-hmm. um, but the day that we we became parents, you know, I, I thought about you know how am I going to tell not only just the story of drugs and alcohol. But how am I going to tell that in context to my own story? Because mm-hmm. I feel like it would be, it wouldn't be the full picture to to just give them this this sober dad. Right. Um, I feel like they do need to know like where this sober dad comes from. Mm-hmm. While, we, while we may not share the same genetics, right? We definitely share some of the same environmental background, mm-hmm. and I know that there is a really good chance that mm-hmm. some of the things that I faced growing up, they may face because of their past mm-hmm. and and honestly because of their genetics as well. Right, you know, I right. think that there's a there's an opportunity for them to kind of, you know, have some of these tendencies. And so I, I think about it probably more than most parents do. Mm-hmm. You know, how am I gonna talk to my kids about drugs and alcohol? Because I want them to understand that that it is actual poison. Mm-hmm. Um and that for some people, there's not as there's not as great of a risk of dependency as it is for others, and mm-hmm. I and I want them to know that they have a high risk of dependency should they go down that road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting. I have friends who have children and, and talk to me about it because again, because I grew up with it and had was given that conversation, and it definitely helped me. You know, I think I still wanted to learn my own lessons, but it. I think it helped me stop sooner because I mm-hmm. knew immediately what was happening to me. I knew mm-hmm. immediately that this wasn't quote unquote normal and that I, you know, because I had that knowledge, you know, I also knew how to hide it better because I knew what 
those signs were, you know, because I was told explicitly what the signs were, so I knew how to hide it from people better. But, you know, it definitely, it definitely stopped me short from going down the worst, you know, paths possible, I guess. You know, I stopped sooner rather than later, I guess. And that, and that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes a ton of sense. Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's probably drawbacks and probably a lot of positives that right. come from having that conversation. You know, I look, we got a whole lot of other conversations to have. <laughs> we still got to talk about sex. We got to talk about what yeah. it means to be adopted. We got to talk about like all these other things. We got, yeah. we got Juicy so stuff. much more to talk about before we get to drugs and alcohol. But I promise you, we will, we will have that conversation. But yeah, we have some other things that, um, and I honestly have no idea. I'm just being completely honest yeah. with you. I have no idea how those things are going to pan out. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it's a lifelong journey of understanding too. I mean, I know with Nick and I, like our own history of understanding ourselves and addiction in the past couple of years, things change like every oh, year. Yeah. I have like a new kind of awakening to what mm-hmm. it all means, you know? That's the adventure of life. Yeah. Always exploring. Totally. An active recovery. Yeah, I think, when for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris, what is next for you? And what's next? What for is Sandra? next for me? Yeah. Well, uh, we are on a tour this year, a 15-city tour. We're working with Dry Soda Company based in Seattle. And, uh, you know, last year when I did the tour in 2019, it was great. But I just felt like we could do so much more. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and really, my my goal in the next, you know, two to three years is to really become a student of the experience and understand what it means to have an experience, Mm. what creates connection. And so I'm really using Sandsbar as like a lab Mm -hmm. uh, to, to kind of understand like, what is it? Like, how do we connect to each other and how do we connect to each other in a sober way? Mm-hmm. And so working with dry soda company, we're really building experiences on this 2020 tour. It's been fantastic so far. We will be in New York in March. Great. Well, we will oh, see you there. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be, you know, back working with big vision and we'll be in Chelsea at mountainside again. So I think oh, that'll okay, be cool. really, really, really cool. But yeah, the, the kind of, Larger picture, and I don't even think I've ever said this on any other podcast, but mm. I am working on writing a book. Nice. Um, oh, amazing. Yeah, I've just really been trying to understand for myself, you know, just, just my place in this in this this world, in this space. And I just started writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got past 10,000 words, and I'm like, huh, I may have something here. That's so. Great. Yeah, no idea when or if I will be done with that. But yeah, I think that's something that I've been working on is is writing a book about this experience and about really building something, kind of what we were talking about being in the water and having mental health disorders. Because mm-hmm. I, I still very so much live with and experience depression, anxiety, and suicide ideation. Those mm-hmm. are things that I still actively at 13 years of sobriety still deal with. Mm-hmm. So just your journey through that creating something and also managing the ongoing flux of. I think that's amazing to just be honest with it. Cause a lot of times you see people, or at least I get the feeling when people get some success, it's kind of like problem solved. Like right. things are good. You know what I mean? And a lot of people don't want to show that side of them cause you're mm-hmm. showing vulnerability mm-hmm. and you're showing some, you know, weaknesses there. And so I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's something that I I realize as well. You know, just watching people reading and you know be, again just becoming a student of you know business because I had never a year ago I was I had just left my job. Let me mm. you know 
let me get it. Let me get the timeline right. Yeah. So just a year ago, I just left my job, but you know, even like 18 months ago, I was still a counselor. And so this was all new to me. And I just kept reading different books about, you know, business and growing business and reading, you know, a bunch of books about, you know, entrepreneurs and people that I, I really wanted to emulate their, their kind of pattern through life. And all of it talks about the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. Everything is about the mountaintop. Everything was like, yeah, I was selling, you know, copiers and then I bought Starbucks and now I'm, you know, a billionaire. Yeah. Uh, it's it's <laughs> very, end. it's very like, you know, point A to Z. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you know, point B through like Y is very, very important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I just don't hear enough people talking about, you know, their role, the role that mental health plays mm-hmm. in what seems to most people like success. Because I, mm-hmm. I will say that I, I do feel like I have succeeded. I've had a lot of great press. Um, I've been able to do this tour. I've been able to open up um, kind of affiliate programs across the country. I've done an I'm international now that we've done a, a pop-up in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, all those things sound really, really good, but I kind of still feel like um, I work. I have to work through those things. I'm still in therapy. Mm-hmm. I still work through very real depression, mm-hmm. very real anxiety, and all of these things are just part of what it has, what the journey has been. Yeah. Uh, you know, I feel like it's important to share that. No, it's incredibly important. I mean, Nick knows. I, I, we both have our own shit that we're dealing with constantly. Nick's more on the depressive scale. I'm more on the anxiety scale. So together, mm. <laughs> you know, like my anxiety has come back recently and just walking through life. It, it's interesting. Like you get to a different plane in your life where you have more education about it more understanding and maybe more strengths in certain places, like certainly through years of sobriety, but there's, it comes back and it's like those neural pathways just get lit up again and you can be like, oh man, I'm way, I feel like I'm right back to the same place I was, even though I've had all this growth, you know? And so it's using, I guess, that education that you've given yourself, you know, to, to manage it. Yeah. And part of it too, is just like learning to love it actually. You know what I mean? Cause I wouldn't be the person that I am or anything in my life. It's been colored by this depression, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really love Radiohead, not because I'm depressive, <laughs> but it's just like, I mean, <laughs> It's like great music. I love it. But he like Tom York suffers from depression as well. Yeah. And he talks about that. Like he's very open about it. And some people say to him, you know, oh, Radiohead, it's like depressing music. And he's kind of like, yeah, because those are feelings that I have. And it colors the way that I see the world. And I wouldn't he wouldn't been able to write that kind of music if it wasn't for that, you know. Mm -hmm. So I like love that part of me. And there was a long time that I hated that part of me. And it's still kind of something like Lacey's saying, you have to manage, but just accepting that that's the way I am makes me feel even more stronger. Yeah. And I think, I think accepting it and loving it are two different things. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I certainly do again, credit my mental health um, challenges for making Sandsbar work. I think because I have anxiety and because I have trauma, I am constantly scanning my environment. Mm-hmm. And that that scanning of my environment is something I've always done. But that also makes me very observant about the world around me. Mm-hmm. And it helps me to engineer a great environment because I, I'm just always 
looking at all all parts of it, right? And mm-hmm. my depression and and I you know I, I I have these major depressive episodes and that depression I think it creates within me an empathy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. for people who are still is struggling in a real way. And I and I think that's why I don't I don't think I'm just superior. To, I don't think I'm superior to anyone, especially those who are just getting out of treatment or just mm-hmm. getting out of their the drinking life, mm-hmm. uh, because I can still very so much feel how difficult it really really is. Those first couple of days mm-hmm. when you don't know if this is going to work, when you've tried this before and it's not it's not been successful. Mm-hmm. And everyone in your life is telling you that this is not going to be any different than the last time. Um, that's been 13 years removed from me, but I can, st- I, but I feel it still. I yeah. still feel exactly what that is, and I think that's because of depression. I have that ability to tap into something that that happened, you know, so long ago for me. But I can still bring up what those things feel like, and then I can translate in that into an experience for people who are going through that. And that's that again, we asked about what makes Sands Bar different. I really feel like my anxiety and my depression are something that I think about every single time that I set up one of these things, even in Austin. So the music is never super loud. Every musician I work with across the country, DJs included, I'm like, look, we're gonna have to be making eye contact and mm-hmm. I want the music to stay at a level where people can have a conversation and connect. Right. Because I think if the music is too loud, people can get really um, overstimulated. Yeah. I'm constantly making sure that my bartenders are trained in mental health first aid so that when we see someone that's struggling, maybe with anxiety or having a little bit of panic, mm-hmm. we can we can talk through them with, with that. And we can also um, give them resources where they can – talk to someone about that. Right, right. That's amazing. Because, yeah, there's that stereotype of the bartender as kind of a therapist, but... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're really and they're not. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, and they're not. They're not. So they do need... And, and again, because I, I used to have a license to practice, right. um, I do think about that. And that is not a, that is not a, a layperson's scope of practices to, mm-hmm. to work someone through that. But what we can do is we can give someone... Um, resources that can help them, mm-hmm. and what we can do is we can make that make sure that that environment is accommodating to whatever they may be going through. Right. And so, yeah, this is this is so much about people with mental health struggles, and and maybe that's the beauty of it. Maybe maybe that's the the secret sauce is that mm-hmm. because I still very so much live with these things, it colors the way that I see these experiences mm-hmm. and people have fun. We still, I mean, like you said, we, we dance, we have a good time, mm-hmm. but I'm always mindful that the product is not the drinks, even though that they, they can be very delicious. Mm-hmm. It's not the party. It's not, you know, meeting, you know, an attractive stranger. And it, it really is about intimate, deep, authentic connection. That is the product that Sandsbar uh, is working to produce. That's wonderful. That's really well said. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that, what you just said. And I think, I think that's good. I think that's a really good way of wrapping it up. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. And I look forward to serving you guys some drinks in New York. Yeah, yeah. we will definitely see you there. <laughs> yeah, um, we're excited about that. Great, awesome. and we'll link, is there anything you want to for us to specifically promote or talk about other than just... Linking out to Sandspar? 
Yeah, I mean, just follow us on the socials, Sans underscore bar on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Facebook, Sans bar. And then, yeah, anyone that just wants to reach out, I always encourage people, like, if you just want to just say hi or you just wanted to ask a question, uh, feel free to email me. And that's at sansbarinfo at gmail.com. And I'll be glad to answer anything that I can. That's wonderful. Thanks so much, Chris. And thanks for your work. Yeah. It's really important. Thank you. Thanks. So that's it for this week's episode. Hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as we love talking to Chris. Yeah, he's such a great guy. Yeah, it was awesome. So if you like that conversation, there's lots of great conversations that we've had with lots of interesting people we've started to interview. And we have great conversations ourselves. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you think so. (laughs) (laughs) So you can check all of that out on all the podcast distribution networks. Uh, give us a listen, give us a subscribe, give us a rating and give us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. For sure. And uh, if you want to get even deeper with us, you can check us out on the social networks. It sounded like such an old person when I said that, but <laughs> I am a millennial. I am hip and cool, <laughs> so I know what's going on. God damn I know it. Our handle, our handle starts with an at sign, <laughs> at Soberco Podcast. So you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, we will leave you with another cool millennial. We assume. Is he not? He we must don't be. Know. Yeah. I mean, he's cool. He's obviously a millennial. His name is John Tessier, and he has great outro music that we use every week. So thanks to him and said so sound. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Bye. Cool. June, what do you think? Are you going to be able to relax? Huh? Are you going to be able to relax? Are you going to be able to relax? Are you going to be able to relax? What do you think?